Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Right. It is 9.23 on Thursday, 7th of July. And uh, we have Raf here. How are you feeling? What's uh, any news? Uh, it's been a quiet kind of couple of days in politics, to be honest. Um, now, literally moments before activating the politics on the couch microphone, uh, I heard that the Prime Minister has agreed to stand down. So the Boris Johnson era uh, that has lasted for only about three years and also a million years in ordinary politics time um, is kind of over although he's going to be interim prime minister for a while apparently standing actually standing down in in the autumn but it's game over for Boris Johnson and um I'm feeling a sort of relieved but not as I mean I don't think any it's going to be a surprise to anyone listening to this that I haven't been a biggest fan of Boris Johnson and all his work um and I would expect to be having a little bit of um the ding dong the witch is dead kind of vibe going on uh, and there is probably a little bit of that, but I think it's more that sense of the sort of the the sun rising over a smouldering crater <laughs> where you can just see some rubble everywhere, and so you think, oh, I'm glad the sun's up, but now also I can sort of start to see the scale of the devastation, and it, automatically your mind turns to all the other things that are now going to have to happen, and you know, who the next leader of the Conservative Party is going to be, and what's going to happen with Brexit. So that bit of your brain or sort of kicks in automatically but i allow myself a few minutes of gave myself a little little punch of the air because he's a bad prime minister and i'm glad that he's not going to be a prime minister anymore what about you phil how are you feeling i feel like there is so much detritus left behind and and none of this solves brexit <laughs> none of this none of this solves any of the problems um that you know kind of existing at the moment in the country and i guess also He's sort of hollowed out the Conservative Party so much that you kind of like wonder what's next. Well, that's that interesting thing about Brexit. I mean, obviously, it all comes back to Brexit, but everything always comes back to Brexit. No, but in all seriousness, it is going to ask now very quickly this. The situation will pose this very interesting question, which is how much of people's support and enthusiasm for Brexit is actually sort of downstream of Boris Johnson uh, and... When, it, when he's not there and this whole cult of cakeism sort of philosophy, which sort of aggrandizes it more than it deserves, but this idea that you can just wish away all the complexities and the contradictions of doing something so incredibly difficult and ultimately pointless uh, in, so many le- in so many ways. Uh, that was, I think, you know, obviously predated Boris Johnson. It wasn't just a function of the, the Boris Johnson personality and the temperament, but he had become a kind of incarnation of that. And if he's gone... It, the, the possibility that the, that the discussion about what Brexit is actually for 
Not, not whether you do it or not. I don't think it's still not going to be reversed for another generation. We've got a dog barking now. I'm going to have to attend to that. Yeah, that's a dog's excited about... It's like when fireworks go off and the dog gets a little bit agitated. There's... Is there a sensible wing of... A quasi-sensible wing of the party um, left which would have a, could have that kind of debate? And I suppose in parenthesis, I'd also be fascinated to see... I wonder if there's a list... There will be a list somewhere of all the people who never got their resignation letters in. Yeah, that's... Who's left? (laughs) Well, that's the interesting thing, (laughs) is it? I mean, I saw something yesterday uh, that on Wednesday in in sort of internet time, um, if depending on where... Actually, it doesn't help if you're listening to this next Thursday. But anyway, you know what I mean. I saw something Mm. very recently. People circulating, conservatives circulating the front page of the Daily Express the day after Thatcher was defenestrated, Mm. which has a picture of a very sad-looking Margaret Thatcher. And the headline is, what have they done? You know, the sense Mm. that... And the the, the point being, oh, when you you get rid of this powerful, dominant leader who represents all these great ideas, you know, then the civil war that follows and the, the, the agonies of the soul of the party for having done that to its great leader. And you think, well, yeah, come off it, though, because Boris Johnson is not Margaret Thatcher in very much the same way that he's not Winston Churchill and the mm. sort of the arrogance of it. I, so I'm not sure... You know, I, there, there could be quite an easy consensus available to the Conservative Party, which is, well, you know... He, yeah, he, he did. The, he did Brexit right, and he did the Ukraine thing, and yay, we got the vaccines. So, but he just, yeah, temperamentally, kind of wasn't really up to the job, and we all sort of came mm. to realise that in the end. And it's a bit of a shame, and you know, and it was a bit of a shagger, and there was the parties, but mm. that was very Boris Johnson. That's not a problem with conservatism, and it's definitely not a problem with Brexit. And I think that that's actually quite convenient for them in a way. I mean, psychologically, to be able to say, let's put all the bad things in this one box called Boris's weird personality. We tape it up and put a rocket it and we throw it in the river and then actually the much more profound intellectual challenges which is are we still uh, essentially a kind of uh, an economically libertarian sink or swim capitalist party despite the fact there's a cost of living crisis are we in the business of actively going out and helping all these people in our new red wall seats um uh, even though that might mean actually having to take some stuff away from our traditional Tory base, or are we going to give up on doing economics seriously as a policy because we haven't got a clue what to do apart from cutting taxes and just fight a massive culture war uh, and to and and just hammer down on the, the issues like um, immigration because ultimately maybe that will stir up enough emotional energy to bring some of our voters along with us. Those Those problems and those dilemmas will still very much be there, and I don't think getting rid of Boris Johnson fixes that. Yeah. And um, which reminds me, we haven't actually said what this episode's about yet, which we'll come on to. It's not even, we weren't even supposed to be talking about the Conservative Party today, were we? That was a bit naive, let's face it. Uh, yeah, and I will, I will say in a moment what today's episode was supposed to be about. Come on to that moment. But it just reminded me of a very prescient um, podcast you did, we did. Um, it was the start of 2020. It was uh, hello, hello 2020, goodbye 2019. No, was it 2021? Who knows? Yeah, Boris Johnson and the pandemic just melted it out. <laughs> Conception of times. I'm like living in a Salvador Dali painting with some drooping clocks everywhere. I was like, hang on. Well, it was yesterday was last year, and last year was you know, the 20th century. No, it was 2021. Beginning of 2021, um, you did a little sort of looking ahead to to the year, and I think that you said some words to the effect that. Essentially, Johnson's holding holding together this kind of weird coalition of all these different people, all different groups within the Conservative, just very, very loosely holding it together. And at some point, it's going to kind of like, you know, well, 
I didn't think you say it's going to fail, but essentially, like, they're, they're going to have to be decisions made about certain things about, you know, tax and spend. And I guess that's that is the point now is that this this very very loose condition it could be absolute like, you know, carnage out there now with the Tory Party in terms of the so many different factions and so many different ways they could go. And don't, I don't know if there's a dominant group there. I think there's a more profound thing has gone on as well, and and in terms of effectively the merger that happened between the Conservative Party and the Brexit Party to, in 2019. You remember, you know, Farage stood down candidates so that um, Tories, very Brexity Tories, could have a clear run to get Labour seats. Um, uh, so uh, both in terms of you know, taking on a political and cultural agenda that actually came from Nigel Farage, it wasn't that long ago that U- UKIP and Farage, they were enemies of the Conservative Party. They are now essentially... In, you know, encoded in the DNA of the post-Brexit Conservative Party, right? So that, there's an issue there that whether or not that is now the new Conservative Party or, as Sajid Javid interestingly hinted in his resignation speech uh, in the House of Commons 100,000 years ago, um, or also... Was that yesterday? <laughs> um, yeah. The, uh, he, he made this point. It's like, well, actually, there is a sort of a conservative tradition in the old-fashioned sense of that believes in conserving things and also recognises the rule of law and individual responsibility. That was a very clear pitch, I thought, to say, OK, we've got Brexit done, but actually, we're not the Brexit Party. We're not those guys. Right? We're not... We're not Farageist. We're actually Tories. And uh, the way I've always thought of it, I think I've probably said this before on the podcast, it's basically for long, for the last three or four years, it basically felt the Conservative Party sort of swallowed this quite pungent meal, electoral and political meal, which was the Brexit Party and, and, and a hard Brexit, that sort of ethos of essentially slightly xenophobic nativist nationalism to get a job done. And it sat quite uncomfortably in the Tory tummy now for a few years. And Boris Johnson, he can digest anything, he doesn't care. But you've had this kind of fizzing, burping, farting thing going on where they're like, going, doesn't feel quite right. I don't think I ate something. And I'm not sure. And then you just think in the last, increasing the last few months, it's like the burps and the farts have got more kind of pungent and noisy. And you think, at some stage, this is going to come out one end or the other, isn't it? Like it's not, you know, that, it's that feeling where you're sitting there thinking, "No, nah, I can't hold it down," and and that, that's what's happening now, you know. And well, I don't want to pursue that image. I've already pursued that image way too far. But do you know what I mean? That is that that clutching of the stomach, and then a kind of, "Oh no, got to get to the toilet." That is where we are now with the Conservative Party. And whether that thing is Boris Johnson, and therefore when it's out, they're like, "Oh, I feel much better now." Right, let's have a fry up, or I need to go and take to my bed and lie down for a long time, or and go and see. A dietitian and, and get okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. Get a new plan. <laughs> Have a good cup of weak tea with lots of sugar in it, and and mop your fevered brow. Exactly. Will they go down the herbal tea route? Um, is there a moderate? Is there a moderate, a more moderate part of the Conservative Party, or is it just spark up a B and H and just move on to the next one? <laughs> well, what's that phrase um, for the hangover? Oh, hair of a dog, yeah. Hair of the dog, that's it. Well, they need a hair of dog. Well, they have to get straight back into it again. God. Well, hair of the big dog. That's maybe that's that's the question. Is it Liz, Liz Truss would be the hair of the big dog, right? That's yeah. that, that's that candidate. Or do they have? And who would be the the kind of peppermint tea um, candidate? That's Tom Tugendhat. Tom Tugendhat, no chance. I'll eat, I'll, like... eat, I'll eat my politics on the couch headphones if Tom Tugendhat becomes leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, by the way, we still haven't said what this episode's about. Um... Yeah, I was all the way, all the time, I was going through the weird, slight, um, kind of slightly scatological metaphor in the back of my mind. I was thinking, is there a way of segging this to what we're supposed to be talking about here? What are we supposed to be talking about? 
Phil. James Johnson is our guest today. He served as the Senior Opinion Research and Strategy Advisor to Prime Minister Theresa May. Theresa May. The long-serving yeah. Prime Minister <laughs> Theresa May, that turns out. So Theresa May served longer than Johnson then? Well, it depends. If he, I think if he gets, if he holds on in on interim basis all the way till the autumn, he might just overtake her. I'm sure, which I think will be a significant part yeah. of his motivation for wanting to do that. He will not want to have served less yeah. than he overtook Neville Chamberlain. I think yesterday. Oh, okay. Oh, our guest is here. Whilst we're introducing him, hello, hello, James. We we were just introducing you. It might be even better uh, if you introduce yourself, James. Great. Yeah, I'm James Johnson. Uh, I was the former chief pollster to Theresa May when she was in Downing Street. And I'm now co-founder of JL Partners, the research and polling firm. And initially, James, we, we got you on because we, Phil and I have been wondering for a long time about actually the opposition and the Labour Party and Keir Starmer uh, and the extent to which it is within his power to do anything to, to, to sort of seize the moment uh, and become you know, sort of the inevitable next government when the current government is in complete shambles. The answer to that question depended until about three hours ago on whether or not Boris Johnson was still going to be the prime minister uh, and all those sorts of things. And it would be a bit peculiar, I think, today to just sort of say, well, obviously the most interesting thing that's, that there is to talk about in politics today is Keir Starmer. And yet, um, given the rate at which things are moving, um, I think it would be silly also to just speculate too much about the Tories when so much is, is up in the air. So maybe just uh, before we get on to Labour, uh, the one question that everyone, I think, is asking themselves now, and uh, you, because you've been inside number 10 and you understand the sort of, as it were, the sort of psychodynamics of that building and being in a bunker, uh, as it often feels, and certainly will have done in the last few hours, would you hazard a speculation on what aspects it is of, of Boris Johnson and his personality that that made him push it so far, the, the sheer sort of pig-headed reluctance to actually understand that he was beaten or the re- refusal to want to be the guy that lost to those people. What do, what, what do, you, what do you think is actually motiv- has actually motivated him in the last, literally the last 24 hours? I think it's two things. I think the first thing is that once you become prime minister, it's very hard to let go. Um, I think we've seen that with uh, Tony Blair, uh, as it took him a long time to come to terms with the fact that he would have to leave early. Uh, We certainly saw it with Gordon Brown, if you remember those days after the general election 2010, as he tried to hold on. uh, The Sun referred to him as a squatter in Downing Street. Uh, And, you know, I saw it with with Theresa May, where there were many times where people thought it was time up for Theresa May, but she she kept battling on. So I think there's something about being prime minister, something about getting all that way. Remember, our system means that you have to climb up one heck of a pole to ever become prime minister. Um, it's years of service. It's years of being a backbencher or a minister or a potential or a PPS or a bag carrier all to get to that point. So uh, I think there's something very hard about realising it's time up when being prime minister. There's clearly, though, something also about Boris Johnson. Um, and look, the reason Boris Johnson became prime minister was because of that really single-minded determination. Um, While others perhaps threw in the towel or decided it wasn't for them, uh, Boris Johnson uh, kept running, kept focusing on the big job, uh, and everything he did really in the run-up to him becoming Prime Minister in 2019 was focused on him being Prime Minister, whether it was resigning over Chequers 
or whatever else it might be. Um, and one one of the things that he, he has been saying in public and private, as I understand it, in the last twenty four hours or so, is that you know you'll, you'll lose without me. That only I can deliver ultimately. And you've written some very powerful, clear things saying the exact opposite is true. That the Conservative Party brand, you know, can be a sort of redeemed. But he can't. He's gone to a place you don't come back from. Uh, and he clearly believes that he has some unique sort of alchemical thing that he can do that, that makes that untrue. Um, now that it's a bit too early to say the dust has settled, but you know, the, the, we are now in, the, in the, as I was saying earlier, the smouldering crater where the detonation has gone off and he is now not going to be the prime minister at the next election. Um, before we – this is a sort of a, a pivot to the Labour question um, – how easy do you think it's going to be for the Conservatives to now say, well, that Boris Johnson, there was a bit of a mistake there. So he was good in some ways, bad in others. But that's just something completely different. That moment's over. And, and how much sort of stain of grease from the grease piglet is left on the Tory brand? And for how long? Do well, you think? Wonderfully put. I think uh, I've, always, I've always said that the Prime Minister's brand and the Conservative Party brand are surprisingly more disconnected than you might expect. Um, although people were very critical of Boris Johnson, although people really do think that Boris Johnson is a liar, and in my view, you know, he would not have been electable for the Conservatives again, they they haven't turned on the Conservative brand in the way that they did in the, in the 90s. Um, they still think actually maybe the Conservatives are best on the economy, um, you know, maybe the Conservatives are best for handling the pandemic and, and for what comes next. And there's still a distrust of Labour and Keir Starmer. So I've always said that actually it's relatively easy to bounce back uh, with a new leader for the Conservatives because that Tory brand hasn't yet been toxified. The one thing I would say, though, is that a lot that reading, I think, depends on what happens in the next few weeks, because I think if we're going to be in a situation where Boris Johnson is holding on as interim prime minister through a long summer, um, although that is the constitutional norm, and that's what Theresa May did, that's what other prime ministers have done during leadership contests, I, I think the public are going to view that pretty negatively because there's all of these crises happening. Happening, There's a need for a functioning government and they feel very strongly Boris Johnson should go. So that could toxify the brand and bring back together those, those two brands that I think uh, so far have been quite disconnected. Uh, we will come on to Labour in a second, but um, and what about just very specifically the the spectacle of the of him having to be sort of dragged out by his ankles uh, in the last days, and just some of the absurdities. So, you know, we've got some fantastically difficult pub quiz questions coming up, like who was Secretary of State for Education for twelve hours on the sixth of July? You know, I mean, just ludicrous things have happened, and uh, presumably just the sheer sort of shambolic, effervescent toxicity of politics being a total mess is something also that Conservatives will then have to struggle to shake off? Or is that just, you know, we, we spend time in Westminster getting overexcited and most people look across and go, oh, the politicians being politicians again, move on, and then there's a new PM and it's a new chapter? Yeah, I think this can feel very big at the moment, but actually I think that a new leader is a big reset. We've become a much more presidential system. Leaders really matter and voters interpret how they feel, even about individual policies, through who the leader is. So I think that actually we will see uh, uh, that move on quite quickly and the events of the last couple of days be forgotten. As I say, the exception being if this drags on for three months in terms of an interim uh, government, uh, which you know is, I think, going to be difficult for the Conservative Party to swallow, then that could change things just by the fact it will be leading the news for even longer. But I think I think actually a new leader is going to be a pretty definitive reset moment. Right, and I promise this is the seg to Labour, but 
one of the things that Johnson has been saying to try, had constantly been saying, uh, constantly as in over 24 hours, this point about him having his 14 million mandate, that's his, um, which is a very presidential interpretation of the way British politics works. It's just a false interpretation of how the British constitution works. But he clearly believes it to a certain extent. And, you know, I wonder, and certainly, you know, I remember in the 2019 election, you definitely met people who are Boris voters. I think it's been overstated. There was a lot of recoil from Jeremy Corbyn. There was a lot of just get Brexit done. You and I both know that. But there were also people who, who and, you, and, and it was a strange thing when Lee Anderson, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a polite way of describing him, let's just say conservative MP, um, <laughs> a bit quite a hardliner in, in a classic ex-Labour, actually, Red Wall, you know, finally walked away from Johnson. Some of the reaction from his sort of constituents on Facebook was, you've stabbed our Boris in the back. Actually, you're just as bad as all those awful Remainers. And you, you think there is a, an element of that. Does he take a kind of a personal tribe with him in a not quite anywhere near like the extent you had with Donald Trump, but is there an element of Borisism that will just go, well, then I'm not voting Conservative. If you haven't got Boris, then that's it. I'm done. I think a few people might might say that for a few days, but I can't see it having any any real, real impact. I don't think voters are that connected to him. He's very unlike Trump in that Trump has that loyal 30, 40 percent of the country who will stick by him, whatever happens. Boris Johnson, does, Boris Johnson doesn't have that. He has a loyal 10 percent. But actually, are they so loyal that they're not going to vote Conservative again if there's a leader that they like? I, I can't see it. Which, which does get us on to Keir Starmer, because clearly his political strategy, such as we can understand it, involved an element of being the anti-Johnson. You know, he was just a grown-up in the room. He was serious. He would, you know, would, could take the heat out of everything. Um, and I imagine the Conservatives will want to, will probably gravitate also towards a slight anti-Johnson, antidote candidate, because that's just the way there's a cycle of things. Um, uh, and, you know, one of the main things I really wanted to get you on to, to answer is something that's been on my mind now for a long time, which is those of us who've observed politics a lot um, and you know, seen different leaders come and go, although there is data and there's polling and you're the expert in this, you know, there and gut impulse and gut instincts can often be totally wrong. You sort of do know the X factor when you see it. And I don't think Keir Starmer's got it. Uh, and I'd be interested to know, first of all, am I, is that, is that a fair judgment? Uh, and does it matter? Yeah, so I think it probably is a fair judgment. Um, we asked voters which word they most associate with Keir Starmer and the word was boring. Uh, that's not the word you use if you're gripped and excited by the vision that uh, a political leader has for the has for the future. Um, so now onto the question of whether it matters up against Boris Johnson. No, it didn't. Um, the views of Boris Johnson were so hostile that actually, in some ways, Keir Starmer being a sort of, you know, nobody man in the views of the voters actually uh, uh, may well have been helpful. Um, he was he would have been able to probably form a government by default just because of how uh, unpopular Boris Johnson was. If the Conservatives elect a new leader, if that Conservative leader um, manages to reach out and resonate to the country, not in a, you know, it doesn't, he, he doesn't need, they don't need to be the next player, they don't even need to be the next Boris, but a way that they are able to convince voters that they might have a plan, I think a lot of pressure will go back on Keir Starmer because what very quickly what voters were looking for what the swing voters were looking for in 2010 is very different to what voters are looking for in 2022 in 2010 voters prioritized strength and competence now voters prioritize strength but above competence is authenticity says what they mean and that's where Keir Starmer is falling down at the moment if the conservatives can unlock those ingredients 
then actually we may see the pressure swing away from the Tories and back onto Labour once more. Well, that's quite interesting. I mean, you use that phrase, nobody man. And I think people will, will understand intuitively what that refers to, since he just somehow doesn't, you know, even when he's, it's something about the, the, the tone of voice and the way he presents himself, you know, even when making a, a significant policy announcement, as he did last week on his Brexit position, it just doesn't somehow leave an imprint. And I, we're wondering if you could unpack that a little bit, just because there's a difference between being boring, which I think some people could consider to be a virtue. It's like, let's make politics boring again, was basically, you know, the, the, the unofficial slogan that beat Donald Trump. You know, that was the sort of the Biden proposition. You know, Keir Starmer's no Joe Biden. So it's not just about boring. It's also, there's there's an implicit kind of slipperiness, the idea that Starmer's this kind of slick lawyer character who is too much of an archetype of a politician in some people's eyes now i personally think that's unfair on him you know because I've, I've met him a bunch of times but what i think doesn't really matter if what he can't do is in front of a camera project the authenticity that he is something other than just a typical politician yeah and look i'm not sitting here and saying you know this is definitely going to be the view of him come a general election uh things can change things do change maybe there's a world in which voters tune in for a general election campaign and and they really warm up to Keir Starmer. But at the moment, I think that's right. It's not just boring. It's also exactly what you say, inauthentic. Is he just saying things because they're popular? And that's really quite damaging. Now, we did a focus group for Channel 4 News right back in January 2020 um, on potential Labour leaders. And the views of Keir Starmer, and it was with voters who voted Boris Johnson and the Conservatives for the first time in 2019, former Labour voters, exactly the kind of voters Labour needs to win back. One comment from one of the voters in the room really stuck out. Um, He said... uh, Keir Starmer, um, he's just a bit like David Cameron, isn't he? He's another politician in a suit. And that perception has not changed, even as voters have become more aware of who Keir Starmer is. And that's potentially a danger for him. If, if Look, if the next Tory Prime Minister is also uh, a David Cameron, just a politician in a suit, maybe it doesn't matter so much. But if they're up against somebody who the voters think are authentic and have a plan, that is going to be a problem. Is that bit of a kind of... Romani ancien regime pre-revolution view is that the sense one of the most extraordinary things that Brexit achieved certainly for a period and I'd be interested to know your view on whether this still pertains is the sense that although the Tories have been incumbent since 2010 somehow 2019 was year zero of, of the new thing and Theresa May, David Cameron, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Keir Starmer, Nick Clegg, that's all one party. And then there's this other party, and which is madness at one level. But also you understand culturally why that was an available resonant perception of, of politics. And is that what, what what's being said there, as it were, that you know, Keir Starmer's part of the Ancien Regime? Uh, and if so, it, does that distinction, is that a bigger distinction now than the traditional Labour Tory brands? Or Labour Tory, is that now still ultimately just the insoluble distinction still in British politics? I, I think this is a rule that applies to before Brexit as well. Um, Tony Blair won these voters, including the voters who voted Conservative in 2019, um, by sort of being the breath of fresh air, the guy with a plan, the guy who seemed to speak his mind, even if it was unpopular. Um, and uh, voters put a lot of put a lot into that. Even if they disagreed with Blair on certain things, um, they were bought into the, the leader. Um, so I think those attributes have always been important. I think they have become more important, though. And I think that's partly because people have become more engaged on things like social media. I think it's become easier to find out if a politician isn't quite... Uh, speaking their own mind. 
um, it's become a bit more of a meme, really. Um, it's become easier to parody. It's become easier for people to to, to spot. Um, but fundamentally, look, I think it's I, I think it's more simple than this sort of you know Brexit changed everything, you know realignment question. People vote for parties if they trust and like their leaders. They don't need to love them. They don't need to want to go down the pub with them. But they need to know uh, that they speak their mind um, and that ultimately they'll they'll do, make the tough decisions and get things done. Um, and that's been the case. That was the case in 97. It was the case in 83. And it's the case now in 2022. And I think that's going to be the test for what happens next. And And by the way, I think in terms of how the electoral arithmetic is going to work, that's going to be a lot more important. It's really easy for us to get a bit carried away with the realignment question and think, oh, maybe the Tories will fall back in the south, but go forward in the red wall. It doesn't tend to work like that. Elections are usually based on a uniform swing. And actually, it's going to depend on those things. Who's the best leader? Who's got the best plan that decides where votes go across the country? rather than anything too sophisticated or too inside baseball. And on that point, then, in terms of, you know, what are the things that actually nudge the dial significantly? And, you know, you've, you've alluded to the very important question of actually the, does the sheer height of the mountain Labour have to climb in terms of the number of seats they've got to win, especially if they're not really recovering in Scotland. So, you know, let's not get carried away on that point either. But I'm just in, in terms of coming back to... Keir Starmer's challenge specifically, I remember in the, the period that that sort of the 2010 to 2015 parliament, when a lot of people were on the Labour side were, were trying to think of reasons why it wasn't a problem that everyone they met sort of wrinkled their nose when they said the name Ed Miliband and said, I can't stand the sound of that man's voice and I don't want him to be prime minister. And they thought, well, that, okay, maybe that's not a problem. Like clearly that was a big problem. Um, and they talked about, I remember one of his, the people around him talking about armour plating him with policy. Like if you just have the right policies that, that then that, and, and I have a feeling there's a little bit of that going on now around Keir Starmer as well. And, you know, I, I just wonder, you know, to what extent, you know, is the drag on Labour such a, that there is a drag? I mean, they're ahead in the polls. You know, a question of well, there are there are sort of three things there, aren't there? There's, you know, does it really matter if he came up with two or three really emblematic ideas that resonated with people? Does that carry over the line, or is it, can it? And is there this kind of long Corbyn effect where actually what's happening, people are thinking, no, I really went off the Labour Party because I didn't like the smell of it. And uh, that smell, you need to open the windows a bit wider and let the air clear a bit longer before I'm ready to go back in that room. That's two completely different questions, sorry. But anyway, to answer both of them in whichever order you like. You're not going to win people's hearts and minds by having a long book full of policies. Um, That's certainly true. But if you can use a couple of big ideas to evidence the fact that you're the right leader for Britain, um, ideas that cut through to people, ideas that resonate with people, ideas that people think will improve their lives and that also are, you know, radical and interesting and, you know, break through the media, then that very well could help Keir Starmer. And I think that's one of the things that he's really lacking. You know, people feel he doesn't have a plan or a vision. One way to try and address that would be for the Labour leader to come up with a plan and a vision um, that that speaks to voters and is easily communicated. Um, so, yeah, I think two or three of those big ideas that they keep repeating, they keep getting out there, um, would would help um, uh, because it would affect views of the leader overall. With, with the removal of Boris Johnson, things become harder for Keir Starmer um, because he because the Labour brand is is not strong. And I don't think that's so much as because of Corbyn as it is Gordon Brown, actually. 
um, the concerns about the economy and Labour are still very front of mind of voters, especially with those swing voters who left Labour in 2019. They speak about Labour spending too much, borrowing too much. It is incredible how many people, which is 12 years on, 14 years on from the financial crash, how many people in my focus group say Labour messed it up last time with the economy, we can't let them do it again. That's extraordinary, especially when you think that during the pandemic, you know, they're just the idea that you can't borrow money to cover things just literally was abandoned by actually a very Tory chancellor. And, you know, when we, I'm not going to, we don't need to get into the kind of Keynesian economics arguments. I mean, we both know, and everyone listening to this podcast probably knows the, the actual technical flaws in some of the arguments that were put forward during that coalition era. But yeah, I say it's, it's, it's extraordinary how salient that is. And what you're saying is the fact that the Tories ripped up the fiscal rules themselves doesn't matter because they're Tories and they can do that and Labour just can't. Exactly. And by the way, the flip side is, is that, you know, Conservatives can never reform the NHS, <laughs> um, whereas Labour, you know, would be able to. If you wanted to bring in charges for, you know, people who, I don't know, you know, got got too drunk or smoked or whatever, then, you know, Conservative government could never do that. Um, but a Labour government probably, probably could. And I think it was even under consideration under, under New Labour. Um, so, yes, uh, the economy is a big drag on on labor now that's not to say that they need to respond to that literally and say well we can't announce anything then that would clearly be a mistake for them but there is a lot of brand repair to do there in terms of whether they can be trusted on handling it because at the moment the conservatives are trusted by default on it and now that boris johnson's gone i expect those numbers to actually improve for the conservatives and interestingly on that point of of just things that people hang around the neck of labor party whether they deserve it or not uh, I'm, I'm guessing that the reason Boris Johnson so routinely in Prime Minister's questions would accuse Labour of wanting to reverse Brexit and the reason why Keir Starmer made a speech just last week saying I'm definitely not going to reverse Brexit is because there are an awful lot of people who think that deep down that's what Labour wants to do um, and, and a lot of Labour activists do want to do it. And, and it's interesting following some of the response to that Starmer message, you know, where he felt obliged to come out and say, by the way, I don't want to go back into the EU and I don't even want to rejoin the single market. Opinion on the kind of very pro-European side into which I am plugged uh, would was sort of divided between people who thought, OK, we get why tactically he has to do this, but it's all terribly depressing. We wish he didn't have to, but go on then. Good luck to you. And this is a terrible betrayal. Uh, this just makes you look unprincipled. Actually, you're pushing it an open door because everyone can see that Brexit is a disaster. Now, I tend to the first of those views. I, I think, you know, much though I wish the second one were true, I don't think it is. Um, so what's your... I mean, if you were advising Keir Starmer on this, would you have advised him to do exactly the thing that he's just done? That's a very loaded question. Advise him to do something else if you like. Look, I think Keir Starmer and Labour have, uh, you know, realised that if they go into the next election and they are able to be charged with reversing Brexit, and even worse, they can't answer the question on whether they want to reverse Brexit, uh, then they clearly are going to really struggle to win their voters back. So it's a very hard-headed electoral calculation, clearly, um, uh, especially on the question of free movement. I mean. It, Labour would become unelectable overnight if they said they wanted to bring free movement back. That was always the biggest issue, uh, the biggest reason people voted to leave. It was always the biggest thing they wanted from any deal. Uh, I would always say, you know, when I was in number 10, you know, all these, most of the arguments were focused on things the public didn't care about, like regulation and goods and so on. Actually, it was really on, uh, on immigration that people wanted to, wanted to see change. So yeah, I think Labour woke up to that. Um, I think on Brexit, that probably is the right thing. What I would say is, and as a as someone who is a pollster, does focus groups, talks to politicians about 
my findings is that you can over focus group. Uh, and the biggest mistake politicians can make is doing a very literal reading of what the public think and saying, you know, therefore we cannot do X. Now, actually, I don't think that applies to the Brexit situation because I think that is such a totemic thing that that's a problem for them. But there isn't there is an ability to lead the public on some of these things, whether it's on economic interventions, uh, whether it's on you know policy, whether it's on stuff in the uh, you know relations with the private sector, whatever it might be, where Labour actually could lead public opinion too. And ultimately, it's going to be much more important for Keir Starmer to be seen to believe in something and be principled um, than it is to have had every position perfectly calibrated as to what the public want because the public are very very good at seeing through it that's a really important point i think actually this the danger of over focus grouping and and coming back to that point you made a moment ago about authenticity the sense that you know actually if you if i was to try and really sort of refine down the essence of what I think is missing from the the Starmer presentation. It is that little bit of that that very hard to define quantum that takes a position that might have been established with regard to electoral tactics in the focus group, but somehow internalises it and then expresses it as if it were coming sort of from your, as if voiced from the chest, not the head. Do you know what I mean? That, That sense. And he really, that's the bit that he can't do. And I think, and when you say, and I think a lot of what when people say, oh, he just comes across as a typical politician in a suit. You know, Boris Johnson also wears a suit. I mean, he wears a suit badly. But, you know, lots of politicians, most politicians wear suits most of the time. And it would actually be very, very weird if they didn't. But that suit, in, in when they say it about Keir Starmer, I think is actually a sort of a, a, a metaphor for a, a type of suited a sort of management consultancy way of vocalising ideas that, that lacks some kind of emotional resonance. And, and that seems to me to be... Uh, not the same as having the right or wrong policy at all. Last summer, I think, or last spring, uh, I sat in a focus group that was in the run-up to the uh, local elections in 2021. Um, and we were talking about Keir Starmer and talking about Labour. Um, and people were being very critical. They were saying all the things we've just been talking about. He's boring, he's bland, he's not got a personality, um, he's not one of us, um, all of these kind of things. And one voter piped up and said, well, I saw him on... TV the other day, actually campaigning in the local elections, uh, walking down the street. He had his, he had, a, um, he had his, you know, top button undone. Uh, you know, walking around talking to people. I said, okay, but well, and what did you, what did you think of that? And the guy sat back, he folded his arms, say, just put your tie back on, mate. Uh, you know, he, they, 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 UK public are harsh, <laughs> but also, yeah, who, who, justifiably so. Who do elected politics, right? I mean, it's uh, they're a brutal, they're a brutal uh, panel. But it was an interesting insight into that the way for Keir Starmer to convince voters that he's authentic is not to take his tie off and start trying to, you know, be um, be sort of uh, direct with the, uh, acting like someone he's not. The way to do it is actually to lean into the fact that actually, when you dig deeper, one of his strengths with them is. He's the ex-lawyer. He's the guy who can stand up on a podium and potentially look a bit prime ministerial and a bit competent. And actually, he's much better leaning into that. And okay, not being that exciting but alt- and inspiring, but ultimately seeming real, then he has to try and do something else and neither look exciting nor real. And that comes, brings us back to this question of who he'll be up against in terms of what is the Tory proposition he has to defeat. Uh, and that's there's so many unknowns here because you don't know how, how sort of anarchic the next few months in Tory politics are going to be. In terms of just the sheer length of the incumbency now, so, so we're in this sort of year 13 of a Tory government, um, you've got to think that the sort of time for a change proposition 
beats more of the same, sort of all things being equal. And I, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a platitude, but there was a feeling in 2019 that what Boris Johnson had managed to do was just suspend political gravity in a way that uh, that um, Nicola Sturgeon has done extraordinarily in, in Scotland for, for reasons that we could talk about if we have time. Do you think now that that, that sort of this the celestial object that is Boris Johnson has now imploded and therefore the sort of the gravitational fields are realigning and therefore political gravity is back and that will just now weigh very heavily on the Tories almost regardless of who is their leader you're slightly re- uh, requiring me to do some astrological forecasting um, which uh, um, you know because it is it, a very hard question to answer because you know we don't know and the reason we don't know is because it depends on who comes next um, there is no reason um, that one of these uh, new, you know, that the new leader of the Conservative Party can't set the agenda. I think because things have been so woeful over the last few months, and crikey, you know, me and myself, I, I feel like I've said the same thing over and over again since mid-January about how Boris Johnson's reputation is is is, is in tatters. It's actually been quite easy to assume that there's no talent in the Conservative Party and there's no way forward. Actually, I really think there is, and I think actually we might all be a bit pleasantly surprised by some of the visions and, and and views we might hear when the leadership contest starts properly. I don't mean uh Swella Braverman and Steve Baker, but I do mean you know some of the other candidates who might who might come forward uh in a more serious fashion when things really kick off. And I think that so you know I think look out for that and I think that we might see some some bold plans and some bold policies and that could well upend things all over again. Um the the, the key fact I think about where the British public are uh, right now, you know, in the 2020s, is that they're the most volatile they've ever been. They're the most ready to change their mind. They're the most delinked from their whether their class dictates their political views or whether their family dictates their political views. Their political views are determined by themselves, and by and they change their minds in a lot a lot more quickly and a lot more in a lot more febrile manner than than they may have done in the past. So I think that if we take that as the essential truth of the British public, I think it really does show us that anything can happen and. The, the other thing very quickly on that is that context matters too, right? Voters are not blaming the Conservatives uh, for inflation in the way that they blamed Labour for the financial crash. Now, that might be a failing of Labour in, in being able to pin that on them like Cameron Osborne pinned it on the Tories. But the fact is they're not blaming it. And they're seeing, in my view, actually, um, justifiably, they're seeing these global pressures, war in Ukraine, um, oil and gas prices around the world as being a problem too. So, the, 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 you know, I, I don't see us immediately going into a world where these Labour leads stay with a popular Tory leader. I think they can turn it around. And I think I think that I think, you know, if they choose the right person, they might. Yeah, it's not 1995, is it? And I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people who think, well, why can't you blame it on Brexit? And the answer is because people don't want to hear that and it doesn't resonate. And that's not why they voted for Brexit. But um, volatility and the the potential for dramatic movements. I mean, I always come back to the fact that the Tories were on 9% in the European elections uh, in 2019. Um, very different electoral system, very different circumstances. Uh, but, you know, the, the Boris Johnson's majority, as I was saying earlier, has sort of swallowed up the Brexit party. Let's sort of imagine that the Conservatives think, OK, we need to just move away from... Um, angry culture wars, get back a, 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 a reputation for sobriety, small-c conservatism, uh, some of the stuff that Sajid Javid was saying in the House of Commons uh, the other day about you know institutions, rule of law, that kind of conservatism. Uh, 
does an opportunity reopen on the hard right for some Faragey mischief on uh, boats across the channel and all that? You know, that thing that, you know, when you think for how long UKIP were just taking 10 to 15 percent by being annoying on the conservative right, potentially, surely that is that that there's a gap in the market there again. But potentially, yeah, depending on where the next leader goes. I think if look, the Conservative Party has a huge coalition to juggle now. Um, and it's been looking inside for so long um, that it now really needs to face up to this challenge. On the one hand, you've got the Remain voters and traditional Tories in the South and across the country, but they're, they're more concentrated in the South, who stuck with the Conservatives in 2019. For them, getting Brexit done was about getting it out of the way so you could get onto public services and other issues. And then you've got the new voters and it, from new voters from 2017 and from 2019 who came over to the Conservatives um, uh, because they voted leave and because getting Brexit done for them meant, you know, um, honouring my vote and and moving forward with with what that means for the country and for the future. So that is in some ways a, a very diverse coalition to try and hold together. And if you pivot more, more too much towards the first one, um, towards, you know, as shorthand, the South, it's more complicated than that, but let's just say it, um, to, to the South, then yes, you do leave an opening for somebody... Uh, like Farage or, or or another force to try and pick up those those, those more sort of um, uh, diehard Leave voters uh, in 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 areas who are concentrated more in areas in North and Midlands. So the same ha- the same applies the other way. By the way, you know we've been speaking about the Lib Dem gains and the Lib Dem by election gains over the last few weeks. If the Conservative goes too far on the other side, then you could see that attrition continuing. So it's about finding ways to bring that coalition together. I think I think it's possible. There's more that unites than you might think. And actually, the things that we tend to think might divide them, like immigration, for example, actually don't. Um, there's more than more you might. There's more that uh, they have in common. You might think. So that's going to be the challenge. And if the Conservatives can do that and and carry both coalitions, they might carry less of them in 2019. I think, but no doubt about that. But they may still be able to to bring the two together. Now, you mentioned the Lib Dems. I was talking to. Uh, uh someone quite senior in the Lib Dem sort of strategy department, for want of a better word, about their position. And, you know, they've done well in in mopping up extraordinary numbers of uh, disappointed Tory voters. And we were talking about Brexit again. And I said, look, is the position, much as I think it is for Labour, that... uh, Angry FBPE Remainers basically don't have anywhere to go, so you don't actually need to worry about them. They are not going to vote Tory because they're disappointed that Keir Starmer won't go back into the single market. And I think that's the same with Ed Davey. And the, I, I put that as a question, and the answer I got was essentially, well, I'm not going to say it exactly like that, but yes, that is <laughs> they basically like Remainers just basically have to suck up a bit of we're not going back into the EU because where else are they going to go? Uh, is that broadly speaking, true? Or is, is do, 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 do Lib Dems and Labour have to slightly worry about um, the, the ultra-Remainers kind of losing heart? No, I think I think if, if, if the, look, the reason the Lib Dems are doing so well at the moment is because they actually don't have a national brand. Voters don't know what they stand for nationally. And if you were talking about one of the main two parties, that would be a real problem for them. But actually, because they win based on local issues and because they um, win as a bit of a protest vote as well, that's actually what's meaning that Leave voters and Remain voters alike can opt for them right now. If the, if, the, if the Lib Dems took a very firm position on stopping Brexit, reversing Brexit, I think you would see their vote, even if nationally it stayed level, actually in the places where they could win, particularly in Conservative-facing seats, they would they would struggle, as you saw in 2019. 
Um, voters are really done with the Brexit debate. And that might dishearten some of your listeners. But the way for anyone who has those views to win power is to come to terms with that and uh, to then make that argument um, once they're in once they're in power. But look, I don't think uh, I don't think this is something that is going to change for the next you know five to ten years. I'm mindful of two things. First, you haven't had any breakfast yet. And second, probably every broadcaster in the land is currently messaging you saying, can you come on our program and talk, say all this stuff um, uh, live on air? So I'll let you go in a second. So just um, last couple of points, really. Um, if you're Labour right now, who do you fear as the next Tory leader and who do you really want as the next Tory leader? Uh, and then we'll try the same thing in reverse in case Keir Dom has to stand down because he wants had a curry in Durham. Could have two, two leadership elections on our hands over the summer. I'm sure the public will definitely forgive that. But let's do the Tory one first. Look, I think Keir Starmer and Labour's dream would be if, if, if the Tory party chose someone from their fringes who hasn't been taken seriously in the past um, and, you know, ended up being a bit like a sort of Corbyn figure for the Tories. So, you know, an obvious example because of what's in the news at the moment is somebody like Suella Braveman, you know, somebody who is not broadly rated by the party um, and doesn't seem to have a, uh, a, 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 you know, a political future. I think somebody like that would be would be Labour's Labour's dream. In terms of who Labour would most fear, um, I actually think, as I say, you know, I think they've actually got more to fear from a lot of the candidates than they, they think. Rishi Sunak, I still think, um, has an ability to connect with people. His ratings were very heavily negative uh, in the spring, but they've actually now bounced back to not far off Keir Starmer's rating. So I think he's he's he, he's got a potential... Um, uh, Sajid Javid um, clearly made a name for himself in the last couple of days. Penny Morden always strikes me as someone who could cause difficulty by being sort of having that, that potentially that sort of slight just effortless genial authenticity thing that actually not a lot of politicians can summon at will. I, think, I mean, I don't know how much depth there is there, but I think that she's a, she'd be a threat. Yeah, very potentially. Uh, I think people need to see a bit more of her, I think, um, to, to be able to be sure of that judgment. But I think I think you're quite right. Um, I think even, even people on the more Boris wing of the party, uh, like Liz Truss, um, I still think, you know, a lot of Conservative MPs would not be comfortable with, but actually... Um, if they were able to shed off some of that ideological baggage and actually just be seen as a sort of strong leader, um, which is very possible, then uh, then that could also be a concern for Labour. So yeah, there's a lot of look. This is you know this is not uh, you said you said earlier you know it's not ninety five. It's also not you know two thousand and one, two thousand and three, two thousand and five when the Conservatives changed uh, leaders and Blair was in the ascendancy and could be quite happy that he'd he'd, he'd fend them all off. Um, we're not in that scenario and that, that opens up the number of difficult possibilities for Labour. I disagree with your Liz Truss there. I think Labour would be very happy if the Tories put Liz Truss in. I think that as just in terms of there not, not being flexibility, spontaneity and, and just sort of ability to read the room, I think, she'd, I think she'd be a bit of a gift to them. But we will we'll see in time. I mean, what about the, the other way around in terms of, you know, let's say the... the you know, Keir Starmer feels the collar of the Durham Constabulary and has to do the decent thing, which would feel now entirely pointless given that Boris Johnson... Do you think Keir Starmer would be able to say, OK, I, I promised I'd stand down because of that guy. I'm not standing down now. This is completely ridiculous. Um, obviously, that he wouldn't do that, but it would be quite funny. Um, who then, the Tories thinking, oh, no, not that person, and who are they thinking, oh, go on, yeah, brilliant. Ian Lavery, fantastic. <laughs> we'll take you on. 
anyone from the old Corbynite wing uh, is a gift for the Conservatives. Um, I actually think potentially Angela Rayner is in that category as well. Um, though I know it's possible that she might be, she she she, she would go down with Keir if, if she were fine as well. But um, but uh, anyone that the Conservatives can associate with that sort of Corbynite past, they've tried to do that with Starmer, but very unsuccessfully because it doesn't ring true. Um, but it might be possible to do that with others. Who's the who's who's the one the Conservatives are most are, are most worried about? Well, um, there's a lot of hype about West Streeting. Um, uh, I think that having the media being very on your side and talking about you as an ex-player is helpful because it can be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I haven't seen in his media performances something that makes me think, "Oh, wow, he's really you know scary for the Conservatives." The person who in Labour who has the best understanding of how to win in, twin, in the 2020s is, is Andy Burnham. Um, he's, I said earlier, you know, it's about strength and authenticity. Those are the two things that the public are looking for. And he does combine both. He didn't in 2010, he didn't in 2015, but he has worked out that actually, if you can wear a North Face jacket and pull it off while also standing up for your, standing up for your city and your, and your electorate, it actually works quite well. So I, I think, you know, on the face of it, he would probably be the most scary for the Conservatives. Oh, wearing the jacket and pulling it off is basically literally having your cake and eating it, isn't it? Either you're wearing the jacket or you're not. But I, 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 I know what you, what you mean there. I mean, in terms of authenticity, let's not forget that Andy Burnham, in answer to a, I think it was a mum's net rapid fire quiz question, asked what was his favourite biscuit, answered chips and gravy. <laughs> so, like, OK, I see what you're trying to say there, but that's technically not a biscuit, Andy. Um, but he's definitely grown through executive office. I think it's a failure of or a failing in the whole British constitutional arrangements that you can't, there is, there's no way to do an executive, serious executive job, uh, like lead a council or run a metropolitan mayoralty and then be a candidate to lead your party because you have to get back into parliament. And that's really hard. But that's a that's a different podcast. Phil, do you have anything that you want, any, any more drops of wisdom you want to wring from the exhausted brain of our brilliant guest before he has to go and do the entire day of media? I do have one question, and I suppose it goes right, it brings us right back to current events and something that you touched on before, which is that with Johnson going, I think that you said that um, there'll be, it'd be much easier for the Tory brand to detoxify post Johnson, because um, I think you said that the, the link between the leader and the brand and the Tory of the party and the party itself is much uh, clearer distance. With whereas with Corbyn having gone, um, Raff often refers to the concept of uh, long Corbyn. It seems slightly unfair that for the Tory party that what you're saying is it's much easier for them to shrug off their, their toxic past than the Labour Party. Which I, I wonder whether that, if that is what you are saying, and if so, that just seems desperately unfair for Labour. I feel quite upset about that. We want this toxic effect to last for at least the next five to ten years. No, I think a lot of it comes back to actually uh, how successful George Osborne and David Cameron were in tying the event, the financial crisis, to Labour and their brand. And Labour have not tied the events of the last few years to the Conservative brand. And that's really the key thing. So, yes, I am saying he can recover. I actually think, by the way, that the next three months, if, if Boris Johnson does really stay as interim leader for that long, and you know, even just during the duration of this podcast, that seems to be becoming less likely. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, then, then maybe that could be one of those one of those moments, you know, while, you know, Ukraine was being attacked, while the cost of living crisis went on you know there was a government with only half its ministers not not getting on with the job while the tory party went into infighting maybe they can tie that to them 
But broadly speaking, that is the key, linking the event to the brand. And I think the answer to your question is Labour have not been able to do that over the last 12 years. On that question of, of whether Johnson will make it till September, uh, I'm, I sense that part of his motivation is as sort of petty as really, really not wanting to have been a prime minister for a shorter period than Theresa May. He just overtook Neville Chamberlain yesterday, I think. Uh, he's already beaten Gordon Brown. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's, he's not going to be in the bottom three of uh, short-serving prime ministers, but he's going to be close. Do you, um, you imagine that that's the case? Prime ministers, even when the game is up, tend to want to extend the game. David Cameron wanted to stay through the summer um, I, I, I think um, that the original plan um, for the Theresa May handover was to try and get it going to conference. I think that was in one of the Tim Shipman books. Um, uh, and Boris Johnson is now clearly trying to do the same. Uh, both of those plans by David Cameron and Theresa May uh, did not proceed according to how they wanted it wanted it to. Um, through Theresa, because of impact from backbenchers, through David Cameron, because Andrew Ledson dropped out. So... Let's see whether Boris Johnson gets his gets his timeline. But either way, you know he will uh, he will surpass Theresa May, I believe, on fourth of August if he's still prime minister then. Um, but it's not it, you know whatever happens. I think you know we need to remember that this is not the decade in power that Boris Johnson envisaged when he won a landslide majority just three years ago. Is that a chemical addiction thing? I mean, watching Johnson yesterday, the thing it slightly reminded me of was, I don't know if you've ever by any chance read Postcards from the Edge, which is Carrie Fisher's account of her cocaine addiction. Um, and I'm not for a moment alleging that Boris Johnson uses uh, controlled substances. I'm just it's a metaphor here. But it looked like someone on a massive cocaine bender who simply can't stop and is just thinking, where's my next line coming from? Because he doesn't want to stop. Having been in those buildings been around that power is it actually narcotic in that way is is there is that part of what's involved here no i don't think so i think it's uh i, I think you know everybody underestimates how um how how, how boring politics can actually be <laughs> uh i remember a cabinet minister said that to me once about 10 years ago and uh and that's always stuck with me um you know we always think it's super exciting and you know we comment on it and we do podcasts on it um but actually for most people these are just of long, quite arduous, quite difficult day jobs. Um, so I don't think it's that, but I do think it is a case of you always think there's a way out. And if you're prime minister, you do it because you've always dreamed of doing it. And it's quite hard to let, let a dream let a dream die. Especially if you've alienated everyone in your life who isn't beholden to you for promotion in politics. Yeah, I can see how that the, the fear of falling off the end of your life in that way must be actually quite profound for, for someone like Boris Johnson. Um it's worth saying, uh, just just really sorry. I know that I know they're just trying to wrap it up. And you might want you know Phillips trying to wrap it up, but you might not want to include it. But I think it is just worth really quickly saying that you know what, Boris Johnson did have some high points. Um, it might be hard for us all to think now, but you know he did deliver did deliver Brexit. And what are two other high points? Well, for him personally, that walk down Hartlepool seafront after he won that Hartlepool by election in May twenty twenty one, being cheered at by the voters. Um, that was a moment of personal triumph. And the other one, which is a bit more serious, is when he came out of hospital after his treatment for coronavirus and did that speech on the NHS. I think a lot of people, including moderate conservatives, sat up then and said, maybe this guy actually really, 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 really can be somebody different. Maybe this guy really is, you know, gonna gonna have a plan and, and gonna gonna be someone who ushers in a 
a new decade of conservatism. Clearly, um, the you know the the choose your own adventure novel uh, went in quite a wildly different direction. But it is interesting, just worth considering that. I think it's really easy to just assume everything's been like this, everything's been grim, everything's been bleak. But actually, in the public minds, it really was only January this year that things changed. And you know, Boris Johnson had quite a lot of avenues to, to mean that he didn't end up in this, in this scenario. That is a really important corrective. Well, it's interesting. I interpreted that um, that NHS moment or rather that hospitalisation moment slightly differently. Because it is the most extraordinary spike on the graph. You look at his popularity rating, you think, well, what happened then? It's like, oh, that's when the Prime Minister nearly died because he got COVID. But for me, an element of that, and I, I agree with your interpretation, but another element of it was the sense that part of his appeal was almost as a national mascot rather than someone who actually had to execute executive function. So the point where he was actually most incapacitated was also the point where he was most popular because he wasn't actually doing anything apart from lying intubated, uh, not quite intubated, but lying in, in an um, ICU. Um, and the, the, the point where it all unraveled was when he actually had to get stuff done. Um, and it turned out that was when his sort of temperament was just you know, incompatible with the difficulty of government. But yeah. the concept, as you've described earlier, that the idea that he had that you could map out this new terrain that would bring together essentially kind of some of the social conservatism and some of the sort of sense of national, the, the demand for national renaissance that was expressed in, in Brexit uh, and small C economic conservatism and, and bringing together, you know, Hartlepool uh, and Surrey and the... M4 corridor and all these different places, you know, that was definitely a, a significant a sort of political strategic achievement. But interesting, also one that Theresa May had, had clocked as well, but just failed to pull off in 2017. Yeah, it's about his manner of leadership as well. And I mean, the reason he was able to be London's ma- the London mascot was because he surrounded himself by people who were very talented in that way. I think, you know, in some ways, Dominic Cummings was the undoer of Boris Johnson because, um, as far as I understand it, you know, Dominic Cummings pushed for that uh, cabinet, which was not a very strong cabinet, but was one that was likely to agree with him, and that was very heavily government, very heavily controlled by by a very centralised number ten, and you know that's also ended up being being a real problem for Boris Johnson. Yeah. Lots of lots of lots of political victories to come, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, look, we will let you go, and you've got to have a hearty breakfast for the long odyssey of political commentary ahead. So, thanks very much for um, just by serendipity ending up doing us first. Um, <laughs> you've been in the diary for so long. Well, in that case, we're all the more grateful, uh, James Johnson. Thank you very much. Thank you, Raf, for hosting again. Uh, thank you, Phil, for producing again. And thank you, now he's gone, but thank you, James Johnson, for his insights. Thank you, listeners, for listening. And post a review, share it, you know, the sorts of things you have to do. Um, we're a little boutique podcast, just me and Phil. Um, and so we like it when you spread the word. And also thank you for not taking James's bait at the very, very, very end when he said that Johnson's, one of Johnson's achievements was getting Brexit done because I thought that would have opened up a whole new two-hour podcast. But hold, hold on a second, James. You might have caught me wince there. In fact, the microphone <laughs> might have picked up the, the sound of, of, of muscles contracting in the side of my head. It winced. And I thought, well, did he really, though? Um, but uh, as yeah, no, we, we understood. Anyway. Politically, we understood exactly. Yes, we understood. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.